Mayor and Tom Hughes have been educators in the history and culture of food for years. They have consulted internationally on public education and food. They reflect on their work and the future, including how it can live on beyond them. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Tom and Meredith Hughes. They are the founders of the foodmuseum.com, which is devoted to world food heritage, history, and culture. In addition to that, they have been researching food, recording things, collecting artifacts through their careers, and we are going to be talking about some of the stories behind those collections. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I'm going to start with the obvious, which is that sometimes, no matter how much you have enjoyed putting together your collections and doing research and whatever, you have to find a permanent home for your materials with some welcoming institution. So I want to talk about that need and what that really means to you. Well, we, I started uh, the Potato Museum. That's where it all started. And, and when I was teaching fifth grade at the International School of Brussels, and we realized that the potato was essential, important to the, the Belgian people. We did a classroom project. And imagine a collection that was started by fifth graders at that school became the centerpiece, the collection, the beginning of three major national exhibitions. One, two in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian and the U- U.S. Botanic Garden, and the other at the uh, National Museum of Science and Industry in Canada. And when was that? When was that? Well, we started the collection in 1975. We had moved to Brussels. Tom was going to teach. I was still a journalist. And we noticed that the Belgians were growing potatoes in their front gardens the way Americans tend to grow tomatoes. Mm. And so we were very intrigued. Plus the Belgian frite, which is now fairly well known, was fantastic. A twice fried potato, very different from what we usually have here. my students an article about a new directory of world museums and it said of the 25,000 world museums museums in the world there was none about the potato and I was intrigued with what could be so important that the author thought that the potato uh, should have its own museum and we proceeded with that Uh, we had an exhibit it ended up in three unused classrooms but the community of Brussels got involved in it it was a lot of publicity the New York Times uh, sent a reporter over to see what this was about and we were launched. I, I did a couple of national tours talking about the goodness of the potato. I was one of the early guests on the David Letterman show. And so I've had, you know, 15 or 20 minutes of success, but people love the potato. And I've always used the objects that I started with my students, but I've collected from all over the world in our travels. I've always used those objects 
to explain important things about the world. Here's a couple examples. So uh, you, you know, your audience can't see this, but I'm holding a freeze-dried piece of potato from, it's called Chuño, and it's from Peru. This made pot, this was the first world's dehyd first dehydrated potato, first dehydrated process, food process, and the, uh, the Inca used this to basically carry all throughout their explorations and conquests in the, in the Andes. You that fast forward. No, up and down continent. Up and down. Yeah, the, the Andes. I said. Well, the if you, okay. I'm holding also <laughs> uh, pieces of uh, potato starch that are in little pack, little packing crystals. Mm -hmm. uh, in Europe, biodegradable potato starch is used wherever they can to uh, help save the environment. As opposed to styrofoam peanuts exactly. or something. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, the, third, the third thing I'm holding is a little bell from China. It's a horse bell. It's what they would use to tie, you know, on their horses, but it is in the shape and looks like a potato. So when the potato first came to China, it got the name mulling shoe, which is actually horse bell potato, mulling shoe. The fourth-, uh, fourth No, wait, I, you said the fourth. It's my nice. turn. One, two, three, one other. <laughs> so the potato has also been used uh, in, 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 in space uh, exploration. It's been grown. It's been grown in On the space. space. And there was a whole film, The Martian, which uh, he survived on the surface of Mars by being a potato grower. So the potato is ancient, it's current, it's the future. Okay. And from the beginning, oddly, we when we had all this publicity, we moved from Brussels to DC, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. We set up the Potato Museum in the ground floor of our brownstone and people started coming to see it. And when they walked in the door, they would go, oh, Grandma's Masher, oh! And they would run around and touch things and look at things. People love the potato. And it's not humble at all. It is powerful. We push back on that humble business all the time. So we started having all potato dinners at our place. Phyllis Richmond, the Washington Post critic came. We had an entire dinner at Watergate with uh, Jean-Francois Paquet, who s served potatoes to us and a Japanese film documentary film crew doing something about the potatoes. So it but expanded and expanded. The Smithsonian heard about us in the, well, late 80s. Yeah. yeah. And they came to see this exhibit. I opened the door, they walked in and they looked around these two people, and they went, ah, this is it. So funnily enough, then I became, I, Tom was teaching, I was very busy working on a couple books, but I did gather together the script for this, chose the artifacts for Seeds of Change, which was the biggest exhibit that the museum, Natural Museum of History had done in years and years. And the potato was one of the seeds, and they, another seed of the change at the time of the Columbus was the corn. No, that's was corn. Oh, well, and I was they, gonna tell the story. So was this was this at the National um, Museum of American History? Natural no, history. natural history. Yeah. Natural yeah. history. Natural okay. History. Natural yeah. history. Okay. And so funnily enough, so I was working on this for like two years. And then they suddenly they called me up and they said, Meredith, can you do corn? This was three months before the opening. Oh my God. And this was before what do you call it? eBay, et cetera, et cetera. The corn people had pulled so, out, so we ended yeah, we up ran around and assembled corn objects. We have them in our in our food museum collection, and bam, we did corn. 
so and then, and then uh and then, <laughs> I was gonna, and then we were asked by the museum of canada and national science and industry to be the uh inaugural exhibit when they read national their... science and technology is the name of the museum okay. i'm sorry about that. And, anyway and anyway they they asked us to um, at the very same time oh, we gee. had to come up with the same number of artifacts if not more 8,000 square foot exhibit about the potato from our collection. We were the guests when it opened. We did the programs and the whole exhibit extended another year. It was so popular. Um, all of this happened. And at the same time, we got an opportunity to move to New Mexico. And what became our focus, which was the potato, expanded into all of the other foods of the Americas, including the corn, the squashes, the beans, and all that. 60% of what we now eat uh, world eats comes from the from from the Americas. So we expanded out from the potato to the food museum and all these other foods to talk about the whole Colombian exchange of foods. And that's where the food museum online comes from. But don't forget, in 2010, we were asked by the U.S. Botanic Garden to join in doing the amazing potato. Was that the amazing? No, the spuds on earth. Spuds on earth. Sorry, sorry, Lou. Spuds unearthed. Okay. And so we spearheaded that exhibit, and it was one of the most popular the, that the Botanic Garden and the largest had ever done. And we did. It, do they with, have? Do they have growing potatoes in that? They exhibit? had growing indoors and outdoors. Oh, fun! Uh, yeah. It was Michigan, great. The scientists at Michigan State came up with a display unit which showed the potato growing indoors and you would lift up a little uh, rug and you could see the potatoes growing <laughs> underground and they spoke to you so uh, uh, so we also did a uh, weekend programming for teachers and children and families one whole, one whole weekend was about the science of the potato we trained their docents to do 10 different stations in which she could explore different aspects of the potato science so you know it's it's been it's been a great great journey um we, we we ain't done yet i mean we also have done a lot of programs around the country oh, yeah. uh, the uh, humanities new mexico humanities council sent us around new mexico and we did programs in libraries and the funny thing about those were some of them were for children okay so yeah. we're doing this program and the children are <laughs> and then looking through from the back are all these adults because they were pretty interested uh -huh. because people really don't know that much about where their food comes from. Exactly. Oh, that's the truth. Yeah. No, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. <laughs> so, so the idea of um, the potato museum, uh, we were back in the nineties, a friend of ours helps put the potato museum online. And we were one of the first institutions of any kind, certainly museum to have a presence on the internet way back in the nineties. Uh, and we've done it ever since. And we became a 501c3 in about 1988. Uh, you know, we became, and so we are revamping ourselves and once again looking for support, quite frankly. We have to pay for our storage unit on and on. We want this wonderful collection to be established where it will be appreciated. And, you know, yeah, we're, looking, little... we're looking for a welcoming community to acquire the collection, and we would be happy to be consultants to help them set it up the way we think it, su it succeeds with the public. We also think that it, it could have a very successful green building with we a, have a whole we've reimagined what a museum can be and and after all a potato museum what who knows and right so a, a and... great cafe which would have all you know <laughs> offer the guests uh, some of the great there? potato cuisine from around the world. 
and um, uh, lots of the beverages. And a Belgian fridge stand. And uh, Belgian, uh, not Belgian, I mean, we're, we're uh, all, potato vodka. I mean, we're all potato right. eaters all around the world. And right. uh, so who it, doesn't it, love mashies? You know, Hello. The, the Potato Museum fits in a rural community. It fits in an urban area. It, it because the potato is so ubiquitous. Uh, we're looking for a community that gets the subject. We're looking for it could be Colorado. It could be Maine. It could be China. It could be, it could be Brussels. It could be New Orleans? I don't know. The idea uh, is that the potato is us and we are the potato. And we and, and, it, and, it, and it really does uh, help people focus in on the subject of food in general. But I will, that brings this, this topic up. It's so funny. In the early days in Washington, when we were getting press, I would get calls from DJs, you know, in Wisconsin or who knows where. No mm -hmm. offense, Wisconsin. And they would say, yeah, so how many potatoes have you got in there? And uh, how many different, you know, and I would yeah. say, hey, how many Elvis Presleys are there at Graceland? And there would be well, dead silence. Elvis Presley certainly wasn't at Graceland, but Elvis was. No, he never was there. Okay. That's not the, that's, oh, that's Tom, right. you ruined the whole joke. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, Liberace. first we eat, then we do everything else. To quote an interview with my favorite person, almost in the food world, MFK Fisher. Mm -hmm. Right? If you can't, you can't do anything unless you've been fed. Right. No, no, oh. I, think, I think you're right. Hello. There you go. And, and so I'm curious to know how you decided that, I mean, it was it really and truly something that came out of teaching because you've made so much accessible. I mean, besides potato, you've researched all sorts of other things and made it accessible to people. And how did you decide that is that partially because you're a journalist? Is it teaching? What 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 is that that desire to um, talk to people? In my case, um, I I saw the potato growing for the first time when I moved to Belgium. Something that I'd eaten and known about all my life. My dad had a garden, but we never grew potatoes. They were you know always commonly available. I I noticed the potato once in the backyard of a friend. The flowers were growing. Uh, it was a beautiful plant. I, I just looked at it and I said, wow, at this, about the same time, we were discovering that the potato was so important to the Belgian people. The commercial crop had been taken away during two, two wars by the invading armies. The people had to grow their own. Um, we heard these sort of stories, the ubiquitous of the French fry. And, and so at the same time, I read this book, this directory, uh, or well, you... review the directory. And, and so those combinations of things um, realize that, um, but all the other foods, all the other foods, especially the foods of the Americas, which have gone around the world and influenced so much. And they were there. I mean, who can you imagine a pizza without a tomato? Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine, you know, what's his name? Uh, Columbus never had a pizza with a, never had a pizza with a tomato, let alone so, uh, and, and peppers, for instance, chili peppers were brought so early to those places. So early on, uh, early but on, people don't know any of this. Early on, we saw the reaction of young and old alike. So the all the audiences we've done all over the and place. Where are my books? All the over the place. We have um, hmm. we have seen that people are engaged with the potato. They engage with the subject, uh, and and it's point. it's young and old. It doesn't matter. Uh, food telling people using artifacts to tell to grab attention and then tell uh the pub tell the public or share with the public what we have learned about the world's foods 
Also, uh, I, I did a book series for Learner for younger readers called Plants We Eat, literally about how do they grow, where did they originate, where did they move to, how have they influenced culture. I mean, the potato made high altitude living possible in various parts of Europe, for instance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean uh, the, the, one of the other things is that we discovered, certainly in, in, in Europe and in Belgium, that there were single subject museums that were really of interest. And yet when you come to food, it was mostly farming and agriculture focused rather than the food commodity itself, the plant. And so we took the subject in the area that we were interested in, the area of the food source itself, how it figures in art and music, literature, games, toys, all of that, which was uh, a way, the way my entry into it and, and the way that the public can and, uh, and, access And it. how it's cooked and how it's eaten and how we all gather in community. We like using that word community. Everybody gathered while well, we used to pre-pandemic. Pre right. We eat, right? I mean, it's one of the basics of life to eat with your kids and your family or whatever and your friends. I think the other so, thing- So yeah, I think that's the other thing that always been a focus. Is that the, the potato combined and looking at food in general, the, it combined all of our interests. We both have interest in cooking and food and, and gardening. We're interested in art and music. Uh, and so when we started looking at the subject of how the social influence of the potato, and then you look at the social influence of these other foods, that is the entry that intrigued us, kept us going, kept kept us being amazed and 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 then sharing that with our But audiences. think about the potato. It has a top, a bottom, it has eyes, it has eyebrows, and in fact became, for little kids with nothing, a toy. It has a face. It looks like all of us. It comes in every color of the rainbow. We did a whole book on the potato heads. So it is a, uh, it, it is a plant that people have always looked at and found intriguing. We have postcard after postcard of somebody holding a potato because it looks like Uncle Bill. I don't know what. It's really fun. Our, our book. I mean, they had uh, potato-less days in England during the first war because uh, they had to ship the potatoes to the uh, front lines. And there were uh, people, gave, so they sent each other postcards uh, of a picture of a potato saying, you know, remember me, you know, and do your part and all that. The potato was used. It's in this book, The Potato Head's Illustrated History. Uh, their illustrated history. But no offense to broccoli. Would you send a broccoli postcard? I don't think. But the Although, idea is that the potato was used to recruit all the armies. We have pictures and images of potatoes being used to recruit soldiers. Well, uh, World War in, One lasted in, as long as it did because in, the Germans had an incredible supply of potatoes. So it was used quite to recruit, recruit people in the French, the British, the Americans, and the Germans all used images of the potato to recruit for the war. Sorry. So did, have you learned new things from people as they come and visit your, uh, perhaps when they visited either your museum or the exhibits that you had done in other places? Did people tell you things that you didn't know? Well, I'll tell you what the most, well, most recent interesting thing is the potato arriving first on the island where you and I first stepped on land. What is it called? Canary yeah, Islands. Island, yeah. We didn't know that. It landed, the Spanish brought it there first. Yeah. And we, <laughs> when junior year abroad, uh, landed there as well. 
Well, we had, before we, we were doing potatoes. We've had people when we had the exhibit <laughs> up in Washington, we had people walk in and say, and almost break down in tears. Uh, I can remember. I know. I, told, I, can, I, I can remember a woman telling me that she grew up in wartime Greece, and the only thing that she would get the prize for Christmas was a potato or two. Uh, and we have I had people... I had I visited in Eastern Germany with a woman who used a lot of her rations to prepare a potato cake for me to savor and to enjoy. Somebody told us about a mother and daughter who took potatoes and turned it into liquid so they could carry it in bottles to escape Nazi Germany. Wow. And and live no, live on the it. The stories we've been told I mean, somebody are, did, that was something we had no idea. Are memorable and earth-shaking. Uh, and, and, and if you expand it out to the sweet potato, which is another huge subject that we follow. Not related to, to the potato, related to the morning um, glory. Thank you. The sweet potato is revered in Japan because when the rice crop was failed and has over the years, periodically, the sweet potatoes were there uh, growing underground to help survive. It's one of the world's uh, certainly in the Pacific, uh, a major food staple. We follow that uh, subject carefully as well. But think of this as well. When the Europeans first encountered the potato, we've been told apparently, uh, some of them ate the fruit at the top of the potato. Oh, which uh -huh. would do. Like a little tomato. And they died. Boom. So lesson learned. They went and dug down below. And by the way, a lot of Europeans found that the fact that the potato was growing underground was evil or, you know, some sort of satanic thing. So it took a while for certain <laughs> places to grasp the wonders of the potato. There have been some wonderful uh, scholars who have helped us understand this subject. Redcliffe Salomon comes to mind. He wrote the book the uh, history and social influence of the potato in uh, in the late 40s. He was a, a patrician uh, British man who uh, got totally intrigued with the potato and, and he was a doctor, but he left all of that to pursue the history of the potato full time. And then people who collaborated with him, we went to, re we went to research and meet. So I've been both of us have we've been, been all over I mean, all yeah. over the world talking to potato scientists, talking to uh, historians. Um, and and um, we those people uh, came before us, helped us understand the subject. And why, since we've been doing this, the whole subject of uh, food history and it's become an academic subject in many universities around the place. That's important. But we have always uh, tried to just meet the public with the food history stories that they are not getting. Uh, and how many people blame the potato for the potato famine in Ireland? Uh, well. Yeah. It was one variety, possibly two, and it got hit by the blight. And guess who were, was not giving the Irish peasant any food? The English. And I'm, uh, no, a, I mean, it's such a complicated story, but the potato, it was not the potato's fault. They so, took all the meat and all the grain and all the blah, blah. So I tell me it. now, let's say an institution says, this is something that uh, we might be interested in. How many objects do you have? What does the collection consist of? Well, it's well over 2,000 items. I mean, we can't, you know, we're still working now on accessioning everything. And it ranges from art and tools and cooking implements to photography, to games, to China, to uh, objects like the bell. Uh, I mean, it's it just anything potato is we collect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't send us anything. But we, so it is, you know, it is a colorful way 
to tell the story of a plant. It's not a lot of old plows. We have a couple. It's not a lot of digging tools. We have ancient Peruvian tools, but it is wide ranging. What can I say? Wide ranging. <laughs> and then you have descriptions in your catalog of each of the items. And We're trying, yeah. Items. And we have over 450 books related to the potato. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we have a 10 by 12 foot storage unit with nothing but potato. Mm -hmm. And we have, don't even, oh, and we, yeah. So it's quite a bit. <laughs> yes, it is. And so are, are you, do you have other collections too, besides the potato collection? Yep. My husband <clears throat> who has left to put down, okay. It's going to start to rain. Um, we have a whole collection on rain. Speaking of which, rain, okay, rain, rain imagery, range poetry, rain history, rain. Da, da, da. Mm -hmm. We both love rain. Uh, we have well, the food collection is multiple foods. You uh -huh. name it, we probably have quite a few items. Okay, blueberries. I mean, name it. I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> so yeah, that needs a home too. Really? Okay. Now maybe you know. Uh huh. So if you have over 2,000 items in the potato collection, how many other items do you, do you think you have? Do you have another 2,000 in assorted collection? Rain or, uh, I wouldn't even know hardly, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but, oh, we have uh, dozens of backgammon sets, if that's of any interest. Oh, <laughs> uh, we... We have one dog. Uh, we, oh, I have a rabbit collection. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so what have you done to put the word out um, that, that this, that you're looking for a permanent home for the collection? Well, you can go to potatomuseum.com and see a lot more about it. By the way, it is foodmuseum.com also, not thefoodmuseum.com. Ah, yes. That's confusing. Yes, but, it is. Uh, and I know so, there's a thefoodmuseum.org or something like that too, which is something else. Yeah. No, the, the food museum at Gmail. The yes. potato museum at Gmail. Okay. Uh, we, uh, I was doing a Twitter project for quite a while about the potato. Uh, Tom is doing Facebook potato posts. I'm doing food museum posts regularly on Facebook. And letting uh, people know that that's starting to let them know. Uh -huh. okay. And we're hoping you will start to let people yes. know. Yes, <laughs> I'm hoping that this, uh, that this podcast. We is, hope, we hope. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we are rejuvenated. We are revived. We are, you know, fired up to do this. We really are. Okay. So. Um, we have all this programming. You see, we've experienced it. We've done it. We have programs. One is called Foods of the Americas, chocolate, chilies, corn, and more. It's, uh -huh. we could do it. We just, we have artifacts. We have illustrative materials. Anybody wants it, boom, we'll come in and do it for yeah. money, of course. Right, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, I think this is the right time because I do believe that this is a time when people are thinking that even if they don't open a full-blown food museum, that, um, that 
as an adjunct to other things, like they're already a natural history museum or something like that, maybe they should have included food all along, you know, yes, that's exactly, sort of exactly. And, um, yeah. and so I do think that there's an expansion in the idea of the cultural and historical and scientific and technological influence of food in so many fields where people have totally overlooked its importance. You know, I think one of the things that held this back was that women were mostly associated with food, cooking, grandmothers, mothers, aunties, cooking for the family. You know, it wasn't considered, you know, interesting guys or important. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Of course, there have always been male chefs. Yes. And now, thankfully, there are many more female chefs. Yes. Uh, so, but I think that really was, you know, it's woman's work. And, you know, who gives a darn about women's work, right? Except us. Well, we and e even if it wasn't <laughs> only women's work, it was enslaved people's work or something. Oh, of course. You know, oh, I mean, the contributions. Yeah. Contributions of the enslaved people of West Africa to American cuisine is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And of course, they brought with them foods that we didn't. Well, we had the sweet potato, but they made possible all kinds of different uses of rice and sweet potatoes. And of course, rice growers were brought deliberately seized, mind you, and brought to take care of the southern um, people's uh, rice plantations. They wanted rice. They wanted to grow rice. They didn't know what they were doing. So they bring in these very experienced black growers to do it for no money. Right. I mean, it's really a, oh, I get agitated when I think about this. Yes. But thankfully, things are changing and things are opening up and people are understanding that without enslaved people, without American Indians, et cetera, et cetera, we would have no country. I think, I, oh. I hope that you're right. right? Yes. I, I think, I think. Mm -hmm. I, think. Well, I don't know if this is relevant, but... All the years that we were in Washington, D.C., and years afterward, we, we uh, remembered that it doesn't really have a nickname like the Big Apple or uh, these other cities. And when, yours, the Big Easy, right? Right. So we had this idea, Washington, D.C., hot, hot potato. potato, because oh. more hot potato issues get handled or not or passed around like a hot potato. Nobody really wants to deal with them. No other place in the world handles as many hot potato topics as the U.S. government wow. and Washington, D.C. So we thought it was a perfect cap name. So this book- It hasn't taken off yet. No. <laughs> DC nickname campaign. But we tried. But we're trying. Oh, well. And Tom is working on a new book, which is called what? Each New Mexico? Each New Mexico. Oh, yeah. About the food historic sites of New Mexico. I mean, that's the other thing that happened to us. Uh, besides- going from the potato museum, the potato to foods of the Americas and then to uh, foods all over the world, principally because there is no museum focused on the foods of the Colombian exchange, how foods interchange. So that's another one of our focuses. But while we were doing all that, a publisher came to us and said, you know what, would you be interested in going around France and writing about the food museums and historic book? sites? Uh, France, which, which we did. I don't have it with me. Here. Um, which it's we a did. terrific book, needless yes, to say. I agree. Traveling around <laughs> France, and because they have preserved their food heritage, their food heritage sites, many of them, and um, they're proud to show them off. And so uh, I, that 
That was that, so much fun, Liz, triggered, I have to say. I bet it was, yeah. <laughs> Nobody, we basically defined the subject of food historic sites. And so then we, I did one on Florida. I did one on the San Francisco Bay Area. And I thought, well, what about New Mexico? I've been all over the state looking at the old mills and restaurants. and Some of the earliest matches. vineyards ever are in Corrales, New Mexico, which is right to the north of us. Uh, and all kinds of interesting. So, well, so, so the, the other thing that, <laughs> that uh, is, is of interest to me that I'm promoting is the Food Heritage Center, which would be a, more of an academic center somewhere in which they keep track of database of food historic places around the world. What is their study? Identifying so them, so uh -huh. helping to uh, preserve them, and helping to open them up to uh, the public. Here's an example. Up in Maine, they have alewives, which is an annual um, migration of, of, um, of fish, fish up into the rivers to spawn. And they required uh, a certain assist to get up some of the rapids. And the Native Americans developed these, uh, these fish ladders. And some of them are really, really old. And the communities have, have stopped. So they, with pollution and with development, the alewives have had trouble getting up to their spawning grounds. So communities in Maine have Uber. taken no. <clears throat> communities in Maine have taken some of their um, historic alewives fish ladders and have preserved them. And, and you can and, go and, look and, at them all. And put, put, uh, put historic plaques and information so the public can learn about this. But back thing. to New Mexico. The acequias, the water flow canals here, which originally were from, you know, what the native people were doing, uh, have, have kept agriculture going. And the Spanish came in and they had also used similar canals for yeah, water, but, but they got that from the Muslims who the invaded Moors. and the Moors who invaded Spain. And so they made that kind of agriculture possible. And then they came to New Mexico and boom, it's all a combination. And, uh, and it's, it's, it made agriculture here really possible. And dry land agriculture. Yeah. yeah. So, right. so this is the kind of thing that we, this is the, the many thrusts and projects that we are focused on. And uh, sometimes it's just exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we have run out of time. I want to thank you so much for talking to me, and I hope that we can find a home for all of your research and your artifacts. Thank you so thank you. much. We would be most grateful. <laughs> bon appétit. <laughs> Bye, Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.